welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 161, recorded on September 24th of 2021, the Photo Geekery Show, where uh, we just geek out about photography stuff on every episode, uh, so much as we can find geeky things to talk about in the weekly news cycle. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and with me is always a guest. This week is a good friend of mine and uh, somebody who uh, has really valuable opinions on a lot of geeky stuff, including some of the topics that just came across the uh, uh, the newswire, as it were, this week, um, that is well-equipped to opine about such topics. So I brought on uh, Shiv Verma for this episode. Shiv, how are you doing today? Doing good, Don. Thank you very much. And, and, you know, as always, a pleasure to be on your show and, uh, you know, to demonstrate some of my own geekiness. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, uh, you know, Shiv, you're, you're a, a geek's geek from everything from fountain pens to telescopes and all things in between. So uh, it's wonderful to have you on the show. But what's what's been keeping you busy lately? It's been a while since we last chatted. Um. Yeah, well, you know, the whole issue with COVID is always, you know, going to come up as the primary reason why one hasn't done too much. But, uh, you know, did did go out and uh, had an experience that uh, is worth relating. Uh, we went to uh, Ithaca uh, two weekends ago and with the idea of, you know, just before the Milky Way season comes to an end to get some nice images over one of the falls that is is really very pretty, and I've seen lots of images from there. So we drove, you know, a good five and a half hours and then did some scouting around and finally, you know, got to Taganuk Falls to, uh, you know, get the images that we were looking for. And this is my wife, who's an equally avid photographer. Um, we get there and we set up and everything's going fine. And then uh, it isn't the park rangers. It isn't uh, anybody, you know, from the state. But the the local police or the New York police show up in, uh, in their cars with, you know, lights and everything else. And they start yelling and screaming and telling us to get the hell out of there. Which, uh, you know, I, I just didn't want to question it because that's the last thing you want to do. Um, so I just uh, asked if I may finish my image, and the response to that was, uh, well, if you do that, it's going to be $250 each. So either you pack up and leave, or and it was, it was a, a little, little, you know, disturbing. And uh, yet, you know, I've been there to that location probably, you know, 10 times in the past and never experienced, uh, you know, this. So, so wait, uh, hold on. I, I got to dial this back a bit. Um, you're not allowed to be there. Like, is that, is that the reason like the, you needed yeah, a permit or well, you just simply were not like you were trespassing? What was the deal? Well, uh, he said it's, it's all closed and you can't be here. So, you know, I did go out and look up and, you know, see what there was and, you know, there's, there's, you know, if you just search on the web, there's probably, you know, hundreds of images of the, the Taganak Falls photographed at night. And the interesting thing was that, uh, you know, there were, there were other night photographers who were down the riverbed, uh, with, you know, with their headlamps on and things like that. But, uh, I don't think the cop was going to walk all the way, you know, down into the gorge and then yeah, the you were easy picking. So we were easy picking. But it was an experience, and uh, you know, it just goes to show that what you think is okay may not be okay in somebody's opinion, and uh, you get thrown out. 
Well, I mean, so was- I, I'm no stranger to um, urban exploration, which, I mean, can be also classified as recreational trespassing uh, to some degree. And so, you know, the, you bend the line sometimes to, uh, to, to, to get an image that you might not otherwise be allowed to get uh, because you should not be in that particular location. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know, I, I do respect, um, you know, certain boundaries. Like if, if there's um, a provincial or a national park here that is closed, I mean, we've, we've had uh, at least, I think there was some closures uh, due to the pandemic. And, you know, you understand that those are in the you know, the nature of public safety and so on. And so there's certain respect for that. But, um, you know, there's a dark sky preserve nearby. Um, it's about an hour's drive from my house, the Torrance Barrens Dark Sky Preserve mm-hmm. in Ontario. And uh, we've gone out there sometimes, uh, you know, even during, uh, you know, this past year, because it's pretty remote. Uh, it's in the middle of nowhere. And obviously that's why it's a dark sky preserve. But uh, it's also a really nice hike just to, to go yeah. through this area. And because it's so remote, you're less likely to see a lot of people out there. Um, so, you know, I, I do enjoy going, and we'll probably go in the next week or two, uh, you know, with the, the fall uh, colors setting in in the area. It's going to be quite quite a beautiful thing. Um, but I would hate to, you know, go all that way like you had gone mm-hmm. to arrive at my destination and to be told, well, you're going to be fined uh, $250 a person uh, unless you get the heck out of here. That It's quite dismal. Yes. I mean, and I did mention that to him. I said, you know, we've driven, you know, five and a half plus hours to, to get here just for this one, one image. And uh, yeah, I mean, he was just, you know, absolutely hell-bent on throwing us out. And, you know, I did did go and look on the web and, you know, see if there was anything as far as, you know, time of closure and things like that. And, and also, uh, you know, while I was walking back, looked for any signs that may have said that, you know, park closes at dark or something of that sort. But, nah, anyway. Uh, besides the point, it just goes to show that, you know, when somebody wants to be a little, you know, I shouldn't use the term obnoxious, but yeah, to some extent it is. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, to, to be fair, though, uh, I, I, I'm of two sides on, on the police because the police are not really judges. They are there to enforce the rules. They don't make the rules. Um, and But they do have a little bit of ability to, you know, sort of look the Flexibility, other way. Flexibility, as they say. Yeah, exactly. Look the other way. Yeah. Now, that that can be done to the benefit and detriment of society. It can go both ways. And so I don't want to necessarily say that all in all, that's a good thing. Um, there's just too many sides to that conversation to have on this podcast that's supposed sure. to be about <laughs> photography. So um, let's uh, let's get into some of the stories of the week. Yeah, um, absolutely. There's some fun stuff that's uh, that's come about, and uh, one big story uh, came from Microsoft, and it's um, they had a big Surface announcement. Uh, which precedes the launch of uh, Windows 11, which is going to be coming up next month, I believe, on October 5th. And so they have a a brand new lineup of all of their Surface uh, hardware, everything from new Surface Pros to uh, the Surface Duo, which is their dual screen phone, and even the Surface Laptop Studio, which is a new product in their lineup. So before I start to dig into all of the specifics, Uh, What did you think about Microsoft bringing these things to the table right now in terms of a a refresh in some cases or revolutionary in others? Does it matter for creative content uh, or content creators such as ourselves? 
Um, well, as far as the the surface products are concerned, um, you know the equivalency of what they call the the studio, which is really a three way product. Uh, you know, behaves like a laptop, behaves like a tablet, behaves like what? Uh, you know, to to me that is is an interesting concept. Uh, it also sort of alludes to the fact that you can do away with multiple devices. Which uh, you know, of course, from from a photography point of view, is is always a good thing if it has the horsepower to do you know what what you want it to do, and uh, you know I've I've never really been fully satisfied with the video rendering performance of the Microsoft Surface product, uh, you know, unlike their, their their large you know, but uh, PCs and things of that sort, but. The fact is that you know using the the eight core uh, processor from the i seven probably is going to help, but you know in, it's actually only the, a four core shiv. Um, sorry, which is four one core, of, yeah. Which is a detriment in in my case. It's one of the few things we're talking about the Surface Laptop Studio. Right. which uh, I'm actually recording this on a Surface Book 3. And so mm-hmm. I've enjoyed Microsoft products for a while. And I found that, you know, four cores is not necessarily limiting if you're doing one thing at a time, right? Like if, I'm, if I've got Photoshop open, it'll utilize all four cores, sometimes only a single core, etc. A lot mm-hmm. of the stuff isn't massively multi-threaded. It can be, and don't get me wrong, but still there's a lot of stuff that relies on one to four cores and that's fine. But I typically have, you know, Photoshop open and Lightroom open at the same time. Those kind of, there's a synergy there. Um, I might have a web browser open with Netflix running. I might have, um, you know, I'll often have Illustrator or InDesign open depending on what projects. And so if I've got a lot of big applications or things that are using a lot of processing power simultaneously, four cores it kind of, it, it doesn't hold itself up that well for this massive multitasking type of environment, which is what I would typically associate with a desktop. Right. There is a difference in that um, they're now using the Tiger Lake class uh, processors, which does circles around the previous generation in terms of the base clock speed going from like 1.5 gigahertz ish to having a lowest um, level of three to 3.3 gigahertz. Uh, and so that, that's a significant improvement. And so that might be enough to close that gap, but I was still a little bit disappointed that Microsoft, uh, now not having to shove all of the internals into the screen, like they did on the surface book, they've got more heat dissipation ability and so on and so forth that they didn't put a six or an eight core processor, uh, in, in the unit. Um, and, uh, also I, I was doing a uh, focus stack earlier today. I haven't finished it yet because there's only so much time in each day. Mm-hmm. But I was loading up uh, images for a snowflake. And it was uh, images taken with my Lumix S1R. So that's 47 megapixels. It was 56 images for this focus stack, a little bit more than average for a snowflake. And uh, just auto aligning the layers in Photoshop, Photoshop utilized 25 gigabytes of RAM. So, you know, memory, RAM is, is a concern. The highest end spec Surface Laptop Studios max out at 32 gigabytes of memory. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, even if it cost uh, like an arm and a leg more to have a slightly better processor and slightly more memory, uh, well, I say slightly more, you, you would double it to 64 gigabytes. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in that case, I would have the ability uh, to completely not worry about resources when I'm doing any yeah. of this type of stuff. And that would be what I would pay for. 
and and you know, I mean, I'm I'm okay when when you're in a critical condition, with you know memory swapping and things of that sort. But if memory swapping is a norm, then you know definitely you don't have the 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 product that you typically would prefer to have. Well, and, and but that, that being said, you know, there's other products out there on the market from uh, Asus and HP and Razer uh, and, of course, Apple, uh, you know, if we're looking to the Mac side of things, um, that uh, that really pack a little bit more performance inside of this device. But then it comes down to usability, right? Mm-hmm. And just because it's got more horsepower doesn't necessarily make it more usable depending on how you're going to use the device. And when I bought the Surface Book, I was enamored with the idea of having a pen input that I could uh, easily have access to uh, for all of my editing right on the screen, right on the actual computer itself. And I've almost never used it. Part of the reason why is because in order for me to switch the uh, the device into a tablet mode, I have to detach the screen from the keyboard and flip it around. Doing so detaches everything, mm. uh, like because I've got it docked to all of these screens. It detaches the GPU, so any program, which is most of the creative programs now that use the GPU, would crash. Uh, if I were to just do that. And so I almost never use it that way because it's yeah. just too labor intensive to make the transition. In this case, uh, it just it, it's it, this really cool mechanism that Microsoft had patented and we knew it was going to come out at one point or another into a product. And so the screen kind of slides forward on a hinge and kind yeah, of the centralized hinge. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's, I mean, a, a hinge on a screen is not a new concept, um, but this type of a hinge is, and it's a really neat way to, uh, to transition the device from one format to another. And so um, long story short, um, I'm going to get one uh, and I'm going to see, uh, and, and I can always return it, you know, if I'm just not happy with it, but I'm going to get one to see if it's a notable improvement over my existing hardware from a usability standpoint, because, you know, when I'm going to be overseas in, in Bulgaria, which is next month, um, I want to have something that is very portable, but very flexible. Uh, yeah. and if, if it hits all of my use cases, then that's great. Especially, you know, if, if I can just work more efficiently. That's really the goal, and having fewer roadblocks is a good idea. And will it be? Will it be? Because that's another thing I was reading about it, and there wasn't enough clarification that will it be Windows eleven f- compatible in its fullest form, or will there be some limitations uh, like they used to have with the old Surface? No, uh, it's it's designed for Windows eleven, so there's not going to be any any limitations therein. Um, there there is a few d- design questions that that I kind of scratch my head over. Um, one of them is the removal of an SD card slot. So now you just you'd have to use a peripheral uh, card reader, and you don't have anything mm-hmm. built in. Uh, so that's a point of inconvenience. They did, and I'm glad Microsoft is finally doing this. And it might be just because of the rollout of Windows 11. They had claimed security issues for some reason in the past, but they now are finally jumping on the bandwagon of uh, including Thunderbolt ports on their Surface devices. Yeah, so it's yeah. got two Thunderbolt so, and, and Thunderbolt 4. Yeah, and, is- and so that increases the the bandwidth uh not overall it's still 40 gigabit per second but it uh it enhances the amount of it's either uh lanes or overall bandwidth i forget mm-hmm. um for pci yeah. express so you go from 16 gigabits per second to 32 gigabits per second for any direct pci express attached device and that can be 
an external graphics adapter. And right. so there's a lot of companies that have little boxes that you can plug into a Thunderbolt par- uh, port and they have a desktop graphics card. And, you know, I don't do a lot of video editing. But if I did, then that would be an immediate upgrade path for the current device, where if I needed the heavy lifting of a GPU to handle certain things, I can add that on to this device. Uh, yep. And uh, and so that was a nice, a nice feature. You also have, because the Tiger Lake um, uh, CPUs are PCI Express 4.0 compatible, uh, it means that any SSD uh, attached to the device uh, can utilize that higher the full bandwidth, bandwidth as well. Yeah, yeah. And they state that it's not user replaceable, but that the SSD inside the unit is replaceable. Uh, and by non-user replaceable, it probably means you have to disassemble part of the device, but that it's not glued in place and you just have a whole bunch of screws and you have to follow a procedure Probably easier to do than replacing the screen on your phone, which I've done a good number of times in the past as my wife likes to yeah. break them. But uh, so I, she's not listening to you, is she? No, well, she knows and <laughs> she would nod and say, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, but the, the thing is that can be upgraded. And I really yeah. wish if, if you're going to go that far. If you are going to be able to upgrade or change the SSD, I don't care how many screws I have to remove, just put the memory in a slot so that I can yeah. upgrade that as well. And mm-hmm. uh, and so great on Microsoft for making a, a new device that looks more powerful than anything that they've produced before, but still has some shortcomings that I right. will have to uh, to test out. You know, I, I go back to the the old MacBooks, which, you know, f- as far as I was concerned, was really easy in the battery compartment. You you could access the 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 hard drive, and I remember the old one. I pulled out the mechanical hard drive and replaced it with an SSD, and then put in, you know, all the various little you know gimmicky things like Apple said you can't do, but you could. You know, it, yeah. it made it made life fun, but you know, unfortunately, that's uh, that's a case that you've got to forgive now and you know forget about it because it's not going to happen again. Well, um, not with Apple, anyhow, that's for sure. Um, right. But I'm, I'm glad that it still exists to some degree in the PC market. Razors, razor blade, uh, 15 inch models, at least the 15, maybe the smaller ones, uh, they have slotted memory. So they sure. come outfitted with a maximum of 32 gigabytes, but it's in a slot. So um, you know, whether 64 gigabyte uh, is available right now or it will be in the future, you have a possible upgrade path without replacing yeah. your device. And and I've always enjoyed that flexibility. But what do you think, Shiv? Microsoft also announced the Surface Duo 2. Um, the, the phone. Uh, yeah, the, the successor to the Surface Duo, obviously, uh, which is a dual screen phone. And it, it's not the only dual screen phone. No, Samsung has something like that. And yeah, Samsung's got the uh, the Galaxy yeah. Fold, and uh, there might be others as well. I haven't really kept my finger on the pulse of that because it just it didn't feel terribly useful to me to have a uh, a phone with two screens. But I watched their press coverage of it, and there was a couple of unique use cases that I thought were were pretty handy that I would not be able to use a uh, a regular you know iPhone uh, to do. And and one of them was uh, if you were to take a picture. Um, the photo when you're uh, about to take it is on the right screen, but then after you take it shifts to the left screen. So it's still up and visible. And now you're ready to take the next picture. 
So this could be really helpful uh, to immediately see the results of that picture in case somebody's eyes were closed if you're trying to take a, you know, a family portrait or something. Or if you're trying to adjust your composition and you want to critically analyze exactly how the corners of the frame all kind of connected together or you want to make any other creative choices you can have that reference to the image that you just took next to the next one you're about to take um, as some level of creative input. And I found that to be a really cool trick um, that I'll never be able to do on a, uh, on a single screen device simply because you don't have the extra screen real estate for it. Uh, to, to some extent, I would agree with you. But then my question is, what's the camera like? That is yet to be seen. They they flashed very quickly in the uh, right. the press release some of the specifics, and they kind of glossed over uh, those details. It's bigger and better than the previous one, but it's not just the optics and the sensor that go into these cameras. It's also so much about computational photography on a mobile yeah. platform. And I don't know. It's an Android based phone, so you know you've got that. But everybody adds their own secret sauce to the Android mm -hmm. uh, yeah, camera yeah. app space. And if anybody is going to do it great on Android, it's probably going to be Samsung uh, or Google themselves. Uh, I don't know what Microsoft has to offer in that space that could compete with the with the other big guys, including, you know, Apple uh, yeah. on the other side. Of and the that, that's that's really where my biggest concerns were is that here's another I, I don't call it a me too, but it's kind of a me too. And if it was really, you know, phenomenal, then I think that in the press release, as well as in the specs, a lot more would have been said about the camera, its capabilities, and then the added benefits of all the AI-based, uh, you know, photography that it would be able to do. Uh, not finding too much information about that kind of leaves me a little, you know, sort of bit in the thread of, I'm still hanging, not knowing which way I should go, drop or, you know, climb up. Yeah. So and that's... It, 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 to me, th there is some interesting use cases, for sure. Um, yep. Like I just described, uh, the seeing the photo that you previously took, or even they were demonstrating how you can kind of have your uh, photos app open on one screen and just drag and drop to another app as a, as a very convenient and intuitive copy and paste type of sure. uh, methodology. Uh, which, again, you know, if I'm loading up my iPhone, I've got the little share button and then I can choose the app and then I'm in that, into the next app and so on. But it's it's not connected as well uh, as when you can have two screens. But I think that that those use cases, they're still in their infancy mm -hmm. uh, and on a device that doesn't really have a, a strong pedigree because it's only a second generation device from Microsoft. And the first one was met with some fanfare. I'm not going to say people just detested it, but it wasn't really, you know, applauded for uh, innovation and, uh, you know, the nuances that could really be benefited from having a two screen device yeah. like that. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. I, I really hope that Microsoft keeps going with it because I feel it's going to need um, at least three, maybe four generations before mm -hmm. it becomes something that is meaningful to the marketplace, as was the Surface Pro line. Yeah. I bought the Surface Pro 3 because the Surface Pro and the Surface Pro 2 were okay. But when it came to the version 3 of that hardware, they really hit it out of the park with uh, you know the hardware that they packed into it, the design fundamentals, you know, the operating system. Everything was just super smooth on it. And I had used that as a, uh, as a laptop uh, for quite a while. In fact, when my main desktop's motherboard died, 
I was still editing snowflakes for my snowflake series through the wintertime. And I had to revert back to that Surface Pro 3 and do complex focus stacking in Photoshop on it. And it took Which is some a great time. compliment. Yeah. Uh, Which yeah. Is a it, great it compliment. Took, yeah. Uh, time was just the, the cost, right? You yeah, know, you just yeah. got to watch the progress bars go along, but it could still do it. Uh, and now they're up to the Surface Pro 8 and and so that, that they now have a stronger pedigree within that. And I think that if they keep this up and they, I, I don't know if it'll require poaching engineers from Apple or Samsung or somebody else in order to really gear up their AI systems. They didn't talk about computational photography one bit in their no, press conference, not, nothing, which means nothing. they don't have anything to offer there, unfortunately. So we'll, we'll see what the future holds, I think. And, and I think I think from a, from a acceptance point of view, um, you know, proof is really when you see people carrying the product and using it. Um, you know, the day I see a guy sitting next to me in uh, Yellowstone National Park uh, with a, with a Microsoft Pro, you know, phone, uh, I'll say, okay, you know, maybe it's catching on. But I haven't really had that experience, and and nobody sort of, you know, stood by my side saying, "Wow, look at this!" You know, isn't this fantastic? Um, but one use case for it would be if there was software. I mean, I'd love to do multi-exposure onion skinning and that kind of thing with a phone like that. Oh, that would be cool, screens. yeah. And then the other thing would be to do, you know, stop-motion photography. I mean, that would be ideal for that type of, uh, you know, creative uh, sort of juices to to have them really and truly flow. But apart from that, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just still a little skeptical about its... Uh, acceptance in the phone world you know when will the teenager say i want that microsoft product and i don't want an apple iphone never uh in the teenager yeah uh, microsoft is a i mean it's an old guard type of company i mean apple is too but apple's really positioned themselves for a younger demographic where microsoft has by and large position themselves and they're trying to change it i don't think that they can do it really successfully um at least not on their current trajectory but they position themselves more for a professional um for a creative space but also uh on the uh, the back end and uh, the whole microsoft azure platform and being a a business uh, business solution yeah yeah and and the phone doesn't fit the business solution so here again you know you've got a, a disparity between you know direction and strategic uh, positioning of products so yeah i'm 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 just uh yes as i said skeptical all right well let's take that skepticism into the next story um because uh reported on uh, petapixel here gopro admits that its hero 10 5.3k mode overheats in 20 minutes under quote zero airflow we didn't really talk about the go uh, GoPro Hero 10 Black, which was recently announced. Uh, although uh, guest on this uh, podcast, uh, Alan Attridge, was talking about how much he was enjoying his um, Hero 8 a while back. And mm-hmm. uh, and I had mentioned that, you know, I'll, I, I think it's about time that I invest in a, in a GoPro. And the Hero 9 was the current unit. And now it's uh, Hero 10. So I was thinking, all right, you know, before I travel overseas, this would be a really fun thing, especially lots of family memories are about to be made. Uh, this could be a really interesting way to to embrace that. Uh, and now I hear that, oh, overheating issues. But 
really is this such a big issue? Because in every we're talking about use cases in the the previous scenario with the phone, but in every use case that I would be using a GoPro, it's not just going to be sitting still. It's going to be right. running along the beach. It's going to be attached to a bike. It's um, heck, I'll tie it to a kite or something. I mean, it, it's going to be in an active role, not just sitting there crunching away doing time lapse. And if it's doing that, it's not going to overheat anyways. What do you think about the um, the advances that uh, that GoPro has made in their latest product? And is overheating for such a device in those scenarios even a news story? Doesn't bother me at all. To be honest with you. If I can get 10 minutes, which I'm not going to be using continuously with a product like a GoPro, uh, I'm fine. I mean, you know, they say it's going to heat if it's in an airflow-free environment, 20 minutes. Well, tell me who photographs or who video records for 20 minutes at a stretch inside a closed plastic box or a glass case. It's, it's not going to happen. So if you can give it some airflow and if it can cool down and if it can give you 30 minutes, which it probably does, um, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, the fact is that this all this overheating thing came about because of the, the performance requirements of the, you know, processes for 4K and 6K video. Well, and they do have but, a new processor in this one versus yeah, the they previous do. units. They do. But, and, um, and, and maybe that's what's, you know causing an incremental heat issue. But does it really bother me as a user of a product that is designed for action photography or, or quote, action cam-ish? Not really, because you know, what are you going to do? I mean, are you going to, if you're going to be recording for extended periods of time, you're not going to use an action cam. Or, or if you are, I mean, 5.3K is probably superfluous, right? I mean, kick yeah. it down to 4K and then the problem goes away. And I don't want to say like 4K ought to be enough for everybody because that uh, could be taken out of context 20 years from now when everybody's shooting 16K video and, and so on. But um, the, the idea is that, uh, you know, if I were to get one of these devices... Uh, I would definitely be shooting less than 5.3K because I just don't need that. And in doing so, you would have the ability to have much greater image stabilization capabilities uh, built into the device too. And I would take advantage of what that has to offer. I've seen some of the stuff that Alan did with his uh, Hero 8, um, mm -hmm. just biking on a bumpy dirt road. And it is just smooth, like some cinema glider has been like moving beside them. And, and it, it's, it's really amazing what these devices are capable of. Yeah. Uh, and so it shouldn't be diminished by the fact that, oh, yeah, it overheats after 20 minutes if you're using it indoors in a stuffy room. Well, okay, you know, go home, grandma. This is not yes. your this is not your camera. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things where a reviewer is looking for something to complain about. And and I think it's high time that we start giving credit to products that do good things, not the little that they may not be able to do, and particularly over extended periods of time. And it's, I mean, it's $400. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, with a one year GoPro subscription, it's $500 without a subscription, but $500. Yeah. I mean, in terms of what is inside that tiny little box, um, that is a remarkable feat of engineering that, uh, you know, while it is small, sure, I can't imagine how many of them they have to sell before it becomes profitable, right? Yeah. I mean, the margins on a device like that, uh, with, 
everything all inclusive um, is probably pretty slim from a manufacturing perspective. And, and they really have to hit that price point because if you start hitting six or $700, people are going to go to different devices. So right. the fact that they can get it at that price point um, and at that size, well, yeah, I think that it's a great little device and I might pick one up as well. I'm, I'm going to wait and see if I, if I am going to keep the Surface Laptop Studio because that'll be quite the expense if I end up uh, holding on to that device. <laughs> But we'll see. We'll see how this no, all sell goes one forward. and get something else. It's it's probably worth that. You know, it's it's yeah. And then and again, you know, go, going back to its use case. Its use cases on a bike. Its use cases on a helmet. Its use cases. You know, people moving. And when you're moving, you're creating airflow. When you're creating airflow, you're cooling it. So don't worry about it. Yeah. All right. Well, there we go. The GoPro. Uh, Hero 10 Black is out there uh, and it is fantastic. Don't listen to the naysayers. Um, I don't have my hands on one yet, but uh, I suspect at some point in the future that will happen. Now, something that I probably won't have my hands on anytime soon is our next story reported by DP Review. Uh, Thionis announces a $45,000 telescope camera with a 61 megapixel full frame sensor and a, uh, a one, uh, 1050 millimeter optic. So this is a company I've never heard of before, um, but you know, telescopes and uh, the associated cameras within them are always an interesting topic to talk about. Um, the sensor on this thing is, uh, is from Sony, and I believe it's uh, you know, based on the resolution, the same thing that you might find or close to it in like an A7R4. Uh, it's all well, I think that. it is the same sensor, 61 megapixels. Yeah, well, it... it's the same resolution, but you know, sometimes for certain cases, uh, there might be a different manufacturing spec uh, design for it. I know sure, at, at the least sure. um, that it has uh, a different analog to digital converter on it because the A7R4 is 14-bit, where in this case, it's 16-bit. Yeah, and and I I've complained about this before because if if I can get a 16-bit ADC then why are they not more commonly used in, in our consumer cameras? Uh, medium format had them more than a decade ago. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it exists. Why, why can't this? Why does it take a $45,000 telescope to give me a 16-bit ADC uh, on a sensor that exists in other uh, you know, prosumer camera devices? What, $45,000, only... Don. $45,000. That's what's doing it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I mean, I, there's a lot more to it. But um, so $45,000, I mean, that, that's expensive, especially when it comes to, you know, I would normally think, uh, and I've seen... Um, uh, cameras designed for telescopes that are like actively cooled with uh, thermoelectric coolers to keep them sub-zero and they've got really exotic stuff to have the noise floor go super low. Now this one is reading an extremely low uh, read noise of just um, 1.5 E. I'm not sure exactly what the metric is but I did look it up and I know that that's pretty pretty low. Mm -hmm. uh, and is, this could be revolutionizing the way that people actually take a look at astrophotography using um, products designed more or less for digital SLRs. But then I'm, I'm left asking the question, well, I'm spending 45 grand on this thing. Uh, the optics might be fantastic, but as we know, cameras do get better and better. And I'm going to want to have a better camera attached to this thing in a few years, just like we do with our camera gear. 
right? You buy good mm-hmm. glass, and that glass will probably survive a couple of iterations of camera bodies at the very least uh, as the bodies get better, but the glass is still really good. In fact, one of my workhorse lenses, the Canon MPE 65 millimeter lens, debuted in 1999. Right. Um, and I'm still using it on a daily basis right now. So the optics, yes, could it be better? Sure, we have the technology to make a better one now. Um, but the cameras of that vintage, when that lens was made, are incomparable to what is available today. So what do you think about this overall? And do you well, think that bundling the the whole thing together in a particular unit is a good idea? I think that's where, that's where the... the the drawback is going to be. I mean, my, as you said, my preference would be just like we have in our camera world. You know, you buy good glass and keep it. And then you buy bodies and use the good glass with the latest body. Uh, This appears to be an all-in-one package and there is no real reference to the camera being detachable in any shape or form. So it just becomes, you know, a a unit that has probably, and I'm sure it does, incredible optics with a good sensor today, but definitely these sensors are going to get better and better and better as the years go by. And I'd like to keep good optics and then have the ability to put a new camera on. And that's, that's really what it is. Styling, yes, it's gorgeous. It's sleek. It's so Italian looking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, am I paying for a Ferrari when all I need is you know a Lamborghini? I, yeah, I think that people that that love exploring. Uh, you know, the night sky. Uh, I mean, you and me both do it. I, I've never really owned a, a powerful telescope, but um, if I were to go this route, I, I looked it up. You can get a, a really decent telescope for just over a thousand to two thousand uh, dollars, and they'll often come in packages that have, uh, you know, motorized sky tracking um, uh, hardware and software on them as well. But if you wanted to go like super, super high end, the, the most expensive telescope. Uh, that you can get from Celestron it is a 14-inch model. It's f2.2, and it has a focal length of just under 800 millimeters. And so I was trying to compare the two in terms mm-hmm. of focal length because it's roughly the same, 1,000 versus 800, um, in terms of what you see in the night sky. And uh, that's $14,000 US. Now, that doesn't come with the tripod and the mounting hardware and all. It's just, just the optics. But those optics, you know, that, that would be a very good investment compared to $45,000 with a sealed package that mm-hmm. cannot be modified uh, or exchanged or replaced. You know, yeah. we're talking about computers earlier, how you might want to upgrade or change or shift some stuff around. It looks pretty well immovable uh, in terms of changing any component within there. So yeah, I would, I would not buy that. Um, not to say that it won't be great, but you know, if I have to, if, if the uh, upgrade cycle is two years from now, me having to spend another $45,000 for the latest edition of that, it's not going to happen. I would much right. rather right. get a dedicated telescope. And I might do this because when, when we're in Bulgaria, we're going to be in a small village. Um, and our night skies are probably going to be pretty light pollution free. 
And I think it might be time when I'm over there to invest, not with $14,000, mind you, but um, but at least get a semi-decent setup and start to explore uh, some uh, deep sky night photography, which has yeah. always been on my to-do list. And and you don't need, I mean, I, th- I think to a great extent, $45,000 will give you the ability to take one image and do something with it. Uh but if for $10,000 or $8,000, I take 20 images to get the same result, um, I, I have no problem doing that. Do I need to spend 45? No, absolutely not. Well, because and previously, a uh, pick of the week that you had made on, on this podcast was uh, the Astro Panel, Astro Panel 5, uh, as a way to really get the most out of anything from a Milky Way to deep space objects and so on. Uh, and there's great software out there. Like you said, to take 20 pictures, there's tons of tools to combine them together with a couple of button clicks and some processing power. And you might even get better results as, uh, yeah. as time goes on. I completely agree. And I, and I think, I think this is, this is a, a, a fancy and you know, you're going to have to wait a year to 18 months to get one once you order it. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if if somebody you know is really into it for the sake of being into it, um, you know, they probably are are hooked up with the Chileans and they go down to the observatory and get their images there, which would be far superior to anything that a home product might produce so exactly you know you can certain astronomy clubs will have access to one larger telescope that you can book time on as well and membership in such a club is probably a heck of a lot less than um, than any of these although there is something to be said for sipping on a nice glass of red wine or a, uh, a glass of whiskey at 2 a.m while you look at the night sky and just wonder in your own backyard i mean that's an experience in and of itself i'm sure well, yeah. So, I mean, if you if you have uh, if you have the funds, then uh, this is a toy for you know fun yeah, happy it, people. <laughs> I I would rather buy a nice car than buy that telescope. To yeah, be honest yeah. with you, but uh, but hey, it is there, and uh, and it's kind of neat just to see where technology goes uh, and what what stuff gets bundled together. Now. Uh, well, actually, before we get to the, the last story here, I, I want to sort of interject and uh, kind of let you plug something where people can find you online, what projects you might want to promote, Shiv. Uh, what, what's what's going on that you want to talk about uh, yourself personally or professionally? Um, well, as far as where can I be found, it's, uh, it's pretty easy. It's uh, my website and it links to everything that I do may end up doing would like to do um you know as you know travel's been so restrictive i mean it's it's amazing how you can get one trip canceled over and over and over again uh and you know now we're looking at uh you know the third year of just trying to get to namibia but uh i'm hoping i'm really hoping that by about spring of 2022 um, I should resume my traveling workshops and uh, you know, whether we'll be traveling a lot internationally or not, I'm not so sure, but at least domestically, uh, you know, that, that's going to be back in the, in the fray. So, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's in plan. But the other thing that I've been doing a fair amount is uh, doing a lot of, uh, you know, virtual sessions for various clubs and organizations and and things like that which has been a lot of fun and uh i did happen to get to a 
a ranch in Texas uh, the earlier part of this month. And, um, you know, the ranch was uh, supposedly great for photographers, but, you know, I, I sometimes wonder whether people understand the difference between what a birder needs versus what, what a photographer needs. Yes. So a birder needs a bird. A photographer yes. needs um, wonderful set dressing and atmosphere and good lighting and so on. Yeah. So, so I, I had a long conversation with the owner and I said, if he really wants to be successful at attracting photographers, he's going to have to dig up all his, um, uh, you know, blinds and, and reposition them so that they are, you know, facing in the right direction for the best light and whatever else. But, uh, you know, it's, it's also a great place for night skies. Uh, the skies are beautifully dark. But there's 120 wind turbines flashing red all night long. So that know, sucks. It, <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. You know, so you're trying to get images. I mean, I was able to, but it it really requires you, you know, settling in, trying to get your camera aligned and positioned between the two between two turbine pillars, and you know, try and capture something in between, which isn't always the best way to do it, but. Uh, you know, those those have been my adventures. So just just as a point of reference. And so uh, we'll put a link to where everybody uh, can find um, Shiv on uh, on photogeekweekly.com. Shivverma.com is your website, of course. Um, and you're on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you've got a YouTube channel. Do you use that much? Um, no, not really. Done, you know, done a few things. I think I'll probably get back to doing a lot more now uh, with the winter coming. So, yeah. Yeah, but I'm not one of those where, you know, I promise a, a weekly show. No, okay, that's not good. my intent. Well, d don't go there uh, for that. And I don't either. I mean, uh, of course, we do this podcast and I would like to do more video content. Uh, maybe when I have uh, less professional obligations and stuff when I'm overseas, it'll be more of a fun thing to do. Because um, yeah. to be honest, I, I, I hate when I have an obligation to shoot something that requires creative passion, the obligation mm -hmm. kind of saps out all of that passion and inspiration because you have to do it. But you know, yes. if you, if you just want to do it, but you don't have to, then it become a heck of a lot more fun. So, uh, keeping to a weekly schedule on that is probably not, uh, not in my wheelhouse. Anyhow, neither um, mine. I, I, I will, uh, do, do a quick plug, uh, for myself here. Where, you know, if you uh, if you're listening to this, you're probably familiar with the fact that I'm going to be moving overseas within the next month or so. We've got all the uh, the paperwork and stuff flying around to, you know, make sure that uh, all the red tape gets cut through and so on and so forth. Um, but that means that if you want a copy of my book, then you should get it now. You can order it from B&H in the U.S. You can order it from me directly, which I prefer because you'll get a signed copy and I'll make more money. Um, the camera store out of Calgary, Alberta still has a few copies left, last I heard. Um, and uh, if you want to get a print, uh, I will be uh, likely selling my printer in the next two or three weeks. Uh, so the final prints are being uh, produced right now. If you would like one, let me know. Uh, and you can get my contact information on the website as well. So that being so said, can I just add something oh, to sure. that? All right. So just, just for those folks who are listening, because otherwise you are not going to hear what I say, but for those of you that are listening and those of you who like to listen to this podcast, do me a favor. If you haven't bought Dan's book, buy it. And if you 
get to a point where the books are no longer available. Get him to make, you know, a second print because truly I've had a lot of fun reading the book and it's kind of been a little detrimental because I pick it up and I'm supposed to be doing something which I should have done and I don't do it. I get into trouble with my wife, but it's a book that gets you engrossed. And there is so much information out there that you'll never get tired of it. And and be aware that in my opinion, I think if there's going to be a macro photography college course, then this should become the textbook. So if, uh, you know, if I haven't plugged the value proposition, <laughs> then the next thing I would suggest you do is go borrow the book and you'll have to buy it. Well, thank you very much, uh, Shiv. And, and even uh, once I move overseas, the ebook will still be available. And I'm hopeful that uh, the retailers that are currently stocking it will put a big purchase order in um, right before I'm uh, before I'm moving, uh, because then all remaining stock is just going to go into indefinite storage. Um, until such a time that I could either import it over to Bulgaria uh, or, you know, come back periodically and, and restock retailers on my on my visits home. But it's not going to be an always available thing once once we board that plane. So, yeah, but this is you. truly a touch and feel book. I mean, you, you, you got to hold it. You know, you got to you got to flip the pages. Ebooks are fine for a lot of things, but to to to, you know, to smell it and to feel it is worth it got that new book smell right and yeah. and of course the uh the physical one at least if you get it from me it's not always available from the retailers but if you get it from me it'll come with the uh, red blue anaglyph glasses which um there's a chapter at the back of the book that utilizes those and it's so much fun if you have children um then it will entertain them for at least five minutes and five minutes of peace and quiet with a small child is worth its weight in gold um it's so worth the book there it's you go the book <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go on to our final story reported on Petapixel. Uh, pet photographer caught passing off composites as real photos. And so this was reported by Photo Stealers, which um, I, I got to admit, we've talked about stories from, from them before. I just love the fact that they exist, that they scrutinize and are skeptical of things and do fact checking on images. And it's great to have uh, them in existence out there in the world. And they've got an online wall of shame that's dedicated to exposing photographers sharing others' work as their own, but also lying about the work that they're producing. And so um, they first reported that New Zealand pet photographer Ben Sh uh, Sheehan uh, being called out by other photographers and also blocking those that were trying to bring his composites to light on social media. So the article here on Petapixel, which I encourage everybody to take a look at uh, through the show notes at photogeekweekly.com, um, goes through a number of examples of, um, uh, of Sheehan's work and uh, and referencing the stock photo images that are available from a number of agencies from Alame or um, I think there was one from Shutterstock, Getty Images, uh, etc. And you can see exactly those stock images for which he has, uh, you know, I'm going to use the verb photoshopped, although who knows if that's the tool he's using, I assume so. Um, compositing uh, his dog or a dog uh, into these images you know what, Shiv, I don't have a problem with that. I have no problem with people compositing images together so long as you are honest about what you're doing. What are your thoughts? Well, 
I have, you know, compositing is is an art. And I, I agree that if you like to do that, go ahead and do it. But there's there's really two two components to compositing. One that you identify that it is a composite, that you don't try and you know con the world into believing that that's a real image. The second thing, and this is very much my personal, if you want to put your name to an image, uh, then the composite should be components made from what you've captured, what you've photographed. Yeah, because then you gonna, are the, the true artist through and through, yeah. right? Now, if, if you buy if you buy images and then use them as the foundation for your composite, then give the other photographer equal credit. Uh, no matter what you do to create the composite, I mean, you can you can you know manipulate it to an extent where it's no longer recognizable, but still, it's not your image, so give credit where it's due. But if you are going to be using somebody else's images, and in this particular case, you know, Shin's talked about the fact that, you know, he's paid for it and whatever, but you, you should not only pay for it, but license for its use and be honest that that's what you've done or created. Um, I, I watched a, a program uh, last week, Don, on... Uh, and, and unfortunately, I just can't remember the guy's name. He's he's an absolutely phenomenal astrophotographer. Uh, he, he's, you know, done so much deep sky work and nebulas and things like that. And he actually developed a style in the way he processed his images. And that style is really unique to him. And there's another photographer who took an image of his own and then composited or overlaid this guy's image on top of that and actually won some really big astro awards uh, because of you know what he created and to come to find out that you know when he when the guy who originally shot this image saw the the edits and and the way the the edits were created on this nebula he said, this is my image. And, you know, it went on to the fact that this guy was stripped of his awards. And in certain cases, he's still insisting that they are his. But, you know, then you're trying to behave in a way that is, in my opinion, not acceptable in the photographic world. It's just, and, you know, and the comments. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and the comments here, uh, and this really kind of, th this is the shameful part for me. Because like I said, if you're going to composite stuff together, Go for it. I mean, uh, visual art allows for you to do so, but don't lie about what you're doing. And so in, in the one image that uh, is at the, the title of the article, uh, there is uh, a dog that has been composited into this very beautiful waterfall scene. I absolutely love the scene, and I understand why it was chosen uh, for the composite, but... Um, uh, ben Sheehan says, um, the water looked awful. Um, I took the photo with a remote release. So obviously he's claiming that he's taken the photo there. Uh, and then he also says, I'm actually behind him crouched down throwing stuff. Uh, and so he's, he's fabricating a narrative of him taking the image and where he is in relation uh, to taking the photograph with a remote release. And this continues. It's not just that one example. 
Um, and he says, you know, I've got 10 more coming up from this trip to this place that he never went to, um, that, uh, you know, this is a really tough walk to get up there on this one cliffside. And he was never there. It was a stock photo that he actually removed a person from that was sitting down and then placed his dog in the same scene. Um, he claims that he's running out of pictures from the trip and so on. And so, like, he's really spinning a story here yeah. about him like being in every single one of these locations and then blocking people that started calling him out is right. totally unacceptable. And this person's reputation is completely and forever tarnished in my opinion, because you don't walk back from something like this. You know, you know, Don, what's also interesting. I read through a lot of this, this on this particular article and, 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 and the doings of this individual and, you know, one of the things that really sort of struck me was, on one hand, he felt it very important to be behind the dog and throw things at the dog to keep the dog there. And then he talks about in multiple uh, images after that, that the dog is extremely obedient. You can place the dog anywhere and he'll just stay there. So you're contradicting yourself and you're making your dog look like, uh, you know, he's not a good dog anymore in one image. And then he's a very good dog on the other image. So but, uh, you know, photos, uh, photo stealers founder, Corey Ann um, writes about it. Uh, and uh, you know, there's an expletive word here and I'll just uh, uh, skip that. I'll, and I'll, I'll fill it in. Another poopy part of this story is that dogs are not allowed in most of these parks because these are photos taken, I'm assuming in national parks and those naturalized areas where dogs are not allowed. And yeah. so that just kind of twists the knife a little bit for me too right oh the, but then his response was even more twisty is that he paid good money and he got permission i mean <laughs> you know you don't pay good money and get permission to do something illegal I mean, come on let's well i mean there, there, there's a whole uh system of of bribery around the world in every country i'm sure you could you know slip somebody you know a a, a big denomination note uh and uh and then find your way, you know, yeah. with people turning a blind eye, but that's not okay either. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I, I think that, that this, this has to be called out. It's one of the reasons why I made it uh, a story here, because, you know, if, if I'm going to edit something to be less than real and then claim that it is real, then you are doing a huge disservice to all other photographers that are breaking their backs to, to showcase the re reality of, of the world. And that's not to say that there's no place for this. There is a complete place for this type of fantasy work. And I have great respect for those photographers that build fantasy landscapes and, uh, and, and have uh, these wonderful ethereal images of models in some science fiction type of scenario. And it's just a really cool story that people can craft so long as they're not claiming that this was a real thing. And, and that's yeah. really where the line is drawn, I think. And, and, you know, the, 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 the thing is, you know, you've got, various forms of quote theft you know this the you know the plagiarism part of it and then and it 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 comes in in many forms it's not just photography but it's it's any kind of creative work you know whether it be writing or whatever and you know, how would you react don just as a you know adjunct to the story if uh, one of your snowflakes showed up as somebody else's image 
and they were well, taking it and and winning winning uh, you know grand prizes and gold medals and whatever else with it. I I have had some of my images show up on websites like Guru Shots before, where people take my work and uh, and they uh, they post it on a website claiming it to be their own. It's uh, it's happened, you know. It, I guess Guru Shots is kind of like a a contest platform, but it's happened on Flickr and Facebook and so many other places. Um, sometimes by other photographers uh, that claim it's their own, or other by uh, other photographers that just take it and share it because they thought it was neat, and that's still not allowed either. Um, I've had so many uh, companies and uh, and even governments. Um, take my work and use it without permission. Uh, and yeah. I, it's not okay uh, on any, on any of those levels. And even just as we're recording this, I had an email come in, um, with a copyright settlement from one of the infringing cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, and obviously I, I don't discuss the details of exactly uh, who and what and, and where, but that's a constant thing that I have to fight as well. Yeah. And, I think that more photographers need to be aware of it and need to be fighting for their own rights. Because if I had um, one of my images, whether it's a snowflake or whether I did a beautiful landscape image in Bulgaria, and I'll be doing more landscape work when I'm over there because the landscapes are just stunningly beautiful. And if I had somebody take one of my images and composite it together in a scenario like this, I, I would take action against them. Um, and there was one case where there was a... Um, uh, a, a photographer out in Australia, uh, I forget her name and I probably wouldn't even mention it if I could remember, but they had taken one of my star trail images and they had composited it, uh, into another scene. And I discovered this through, a, I believe a Google images, reverse image search is a really, uh, good tool to, to find, uh, you know, where your images show up mm -hmm. online. And I, I don't, often check some of my astrophotography images, but I checked this one and I found it being misused. But I also decided to crop my sky out because the foreground was different and just search for the foreground. And I found that, that was taken by a photographer in the United States over Death Valley. Uh, and they had a different sky in that particular image. Mm -hmm. So this Australian photographer took a photo from the US and a photo from Canada, composited them together and claimed it was somewhere in Australia. And that's not okay either. I mean, none of that is okay. Um, yeah. But and, and so it's probably <laughs> happening. If you've got a photo out there that is, you know, licensed for stock mm -hmm. and it's been sold a good number of times, or maybe it's just a really good image that you've got a lot of traction on in terms of social media engagement, check it. Check and see where yep. it might end up. Uh, and so this is my, I guess, my PSA for the episode. Um, there are services out there that will, uh, for a fee, uh, upload hundreds, if not thousands of your images and check them. Uh, my favorite is infringement.report because they don't have any skin in the game for pursuing uh, those potential infringements. That's up to you to hire your own lawyer, which I would recommend you do. Um, get in touch with me if you need recommendations for lawyers in Canada and the US because I've worked with a few successfully. And um uh, or just take a, a popular image and just throw it into a Google image search. You can upload your image as a search term. You can do that on Google. You can do that mm -hmm. on Bing. You can do that on Yandex, the Russian search engine, which just has a different algorithm. And it works really, really well for re reverse image search, it's finding stuff in Eastern Europe or all across your own backyard, uh, in your own country. So use those tools to try and proactively stop this type of thing from happening. 
the more we can engage in the prevention of image theft, or as you said, some of this is technically plagiarism because, well, he licensed it, but he's not referencing the fact that he's licensed it and so on. Whatever word you want to use, uh, I, I would think that every photographer should be doing more to protect their work. Yeah, I completely agree. Because if you don't, then it'll continue to be rampant. And it, it's some for some people, it's their living, and you're denying them their living by you know taking away what they created. And that's not it, fair. Exactly. Uh, all right. Well, we've talked that one up. I encourage people to take a look at the article to just just get get a feel for how people are compositing images and, and how this stuff is being played out. Um, I would not want any association with that photographer uh, or anybody else that does such things uh, in, in my professional space. So um, let's uh, get into our picks of the week at this point in the show. Uh, me and the guest, uh, Shiv, you're, you're here. Uh, why don't you go first uh, with your Okay, pick? so, uh, you know, we talked about uh, $45,000 telescopes today and, and the night sky, and we talked about your astrophotography image being being plagiarized to some extent or used. Um, I My pick of the week actually is a product made by uh, KNF Concept, Love those and guys. And it's called the Natural Night Filter. It's basically a filter that is a 100 by 100. It's a square filter. And then what I did is um, I used the HNY uh, magnetic uh, you know, filter holders. So I bought the um, HNY magnetic filter frame, as they call it, um, and then put this uh, you know, KNF filter into it. So now it's, it's a magnetic KNF filter. But the good thing about this is if you are in light polluted areas, uh, it, it won't take it all away, but it definitely reduces the light pollution caused by sodium vapor and similar tonality lights. A sodium um, vapor that, is a really narrow band of yellow light. Um, yeah. And uh, a lot of streetlights, uh, at least, well, traditionally, a lot of them are being replaced by LED lights now. Um, but that that band of light is not that common in the night sky. And if you can just filter that out, then your night sky images actually become a lot clearer in a light polluted area, which is why these yeah. filters are really helpful. Yeah, so it's uh, it's 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 not an, an overly expensive filter. I mean, there are some others uh, that can cost you a few hundred dollars. This is a little over a hundred dollars. But I'm actually me, I pulled it up on uh, on uh, Amazon.ca and it's ninety nine ninety nine Canadian uh, with Amazon Prime delivery. So oh, um, okay. I was actually surprised yeah. at at how uh, inexpensive a hundred by hundred uh, millimeter filter was for this. I think BNH has it for 120 or something like that. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, I highly recommend it if you are into any kind of night and astrophotography. Uh, the other thing also that, you know, it, it does help even if you're just doing nightscapes. Uh, forget about, you know, the astro part. Uh, it just clarifies the image because it reduces the amount of that yellow band of light that uh, you typically get otherwise. So it's it's worth it's worth keeping in your bag and it's not overly expensive. So, you know, get one. Yeah, and uh you know, I think KNF uh they actually have their own store if I remember correctly. Um, you know, if if you've got a, a vendor that you can buy from directly, try to do that as well 
uh, because yeah. you know it, it puts more money in their pocket and fewer fewer people in between getting to profit off of their uh, their wonderful work in designing such a device. So um, check that out. I will try to get a link to them directly on their website uh, for the show notes where we put the links to the picks of the week. Um, and the same thing is true of um, uh, of my pick. I mean, it's the the vendors on Etsy, and that's the only place where I could find them. But you are, I guess, buying semi directly from them. Um, I I was buying, uh, you know, especially kind of gearing up to be traveling and things like that. I was looking for a nice laptop bag, something that was. Um, simple in design but elegant I, you know I, I like a nice kind of rustic leather type of design and uh, so I found this one from a, a company called Visconti Leather and uh, it is the uh, it's in the Toscana collection it's the Octo Havana tan bag and it's just really really nice um, it has it's got pockets all over the place but it's uh, kind of hidden like there are zippers on the front that are kind of hiding behind flaps so that it makes a really nice soft uh, platform on the front, but you've got hidden pockets all over the place that are just really well designed. Inside, it's got tons. I'm just holding it up here. Of course, this is an audio podcast, so only Shiv can see um, what I've got in here. But it's got tons of pockets and, and places to hold all of your accoutrements, whether it's just your, your laptop or a bag like this. Uh, I might even modify and sew in a couple of extra uh, little um, uh, either Velcro or elastic straps to hold a couple of micro four thirds lenses uh, and a camera because I could easily pack uh, not only my laptop, but a smaller camera like my Lumix GX9 and a couple of uh, small lenses with me to just be traveling about and always have that at the mm -hmm. ready. Uh, you know, you know, throw in a, a platypod and, and a few other things so I don't need to carry a tripod for any of the adventures that were going on. And yeah, it this bag uh, can hold a lot, really nicely designed. It's not that cheap, but it's also not that expensive when we're talking about bags and, and what have you. It's uh, In Canada, uh, it's $284 and change. Uh, I'm not sure what the exchange is in the US right now, but um, I, I'm happy with it. And I would say that it is worth that price, especially for something that, you know, will probably look better with age as, as you continue to, to wear it out. Uh, leather gets a nice patina over time. And I liked it so much that I actually bought a wallet from the same company because their designs are just really, really nice. And so I would check out Visconti Leather um, and, uh, and their Etsy store. And they're store. handmade? Uh, I I'm not certain if they're handmade. It says handmade on the website, but it's really professionally done. And I'm not sure if the owner of the company makes them by hand or if they have, you know, a, a factory where they're being made. But there's there's a lot of stuff available on their website, a lot of different designs. They might be made to order, um, but uh, even if they're not, they're just well done, very well, uh, well designed. So uh, they tick all the boxes for what a great laptop slash messenger bag would be for me. Uh, and I'll be using it in the near future. So that's my pick of the week. Fabulous. All right. Well, that winds us down. Another episode of Photo Geek Weekly has concluded. And I want to thank you again, Shiv, for being a part of the conversation. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Don. Pleasure. 
And uh, as, you know, traveling is starting to resume and borders are starting to reopen. I mean, I had to cancel a, a, an event. I was going to go to the Oda Chicago uh, Botanic Gardens uh, recently, but the land border between Canada and the U.S. is currently not open, at least not allowing Canadians into the United States. So, um, but as travel continues to reopen, uh, I, I want to cautiously say, carefully, as we all return to whatever the world is going to be on the other side of this pandemic, that it's time to get out and shoot. <laughs>